The Lord be with you. Let's stand for the reading of the gospel text. Thank you, Brent. This is in John 12. I just have a short, short portion I'm reading. It says, The next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. The word of the Lord. Why don't you go and be seated. A couple of things that, uh, 8.30 in the morning services are kind of like we're all still waking up, right? It's not that you're all depressed this morning, I take it. It's like, and I think our bodies are still at 7.30 from, anyway. <laughs> uh, a couple of things I want to say about this text before I jump into what I want to address this morning is, um, you know, these people at this moment in the story of Jesus, um, they'd been building this expectation that, uh, of what he was going to do. They had seen the powerful miracles of healing that he had done. They'd witnessed the, the miraculous food multiplication that he had done. Some of them were following him around just because he'd do that and, you know, free lunch. And, uh, but what was on the forefront of everybody's mind, really, was freedom. Uh, freedom from repressive Rome. Freedom for the Jewish people to be in control of their own lives, again, instead of under Roman oppression, be in control of their own land. And the palms that they were waving were really symbolic of joy and celebration in anticipation of the fact that they, had, they were viewing that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the hope for them. Um, the one that would deal the death blow to the Romans, right? This was a political moment for them, more than it was a religious moment. And they were crying out to Jesus, Hosanna. That word actually means, Lord, save us. And the implication was, or the indication was, from these Romans, help us. The, the Messiah was supposed to give the people back the land. The Messiah was supposed to restore life back to the people who had known their own rights to stand up on their own as their own people. And um, they cry out, save us. They cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, you know, God's with you. You can pull this off. We're confident. I mean, you have God on your side. And then they say, blessed is the king of Israel. They say it straight up. You're the, you're the new king. You're the one that's going to dethrone these other rulers and you're going to stand up as king and life is going to be sweet. That's what we've been hoping. This is a political rally if there ever was one. This was the expectation of the people who were waving these palms and throwing down their cloaks for Jesus to cross over as he was riding a colt. But you know the story. He let them down. He doesn't act decisively politically. And within a week of this story, they crucified Jesus. I want to talk about politics today. And uh, I'm here this weekend because I thought, you know, the conversation that was started last week with Jonathan from the message that he was talking about on, on politics is something that I think we need to hear clearly and I think we need to develop a little further. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to the message because he talked about how Christians should orient themselves politically in the world. 
And he rightly pointed out that Christianity is not an apolitical position. It isn't. That precisely because we declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, <laughs> right? And because we declare he's Lord, that means that he is over all spaces, even political space, for us anyway. It's all under his demand as far as those of us who are Christ followers, how we think, how we relate, that's what we think. True, it's dangerous, right, in this day of extremely intense polarization, even in the midst of the people of God about what they think is true, what they think is not true, what they think is valuable, what they don't think is valid. Uh, it, it's, um, it's dangerous to talk about it in the community of faith, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. Um, what it does mean, because of the polarization, that it's easy to misunderstand each other and to maybe misread each other, what, uh, because our minds tend to hear some words and then we want to uncritically, really, shift to an us-them dialectic. We want to kind of get this us, who is us, who is them, and we look for little codified words and then we sort of listen long enough to peg the person. And if they're in agreement with what we say, then we want to say amen. And if they're not in agreement with what we say, well, then we're done with them, right? So we get this very polarizing, instant almost kind of reaction. And I think that's a little dangerous. Um, so, for instance, from last week's message, there was a number of families that contacted us this week, further questions over, well, what did this mean, right? Um, and I, which I think is normal, you know, whenever you try to tackle any of these kinds of issues. My only regret really is that we don't have the real kind of time that for a real conversation, that moments like this, again, are really just uh, monologues <laughs> rather than discussions, which I think, which I think is sad. I, I do think some misread the message last week, uh, in part because Jonathan talked pretty openly and plainly about some of the underbelly of what some have called the Trump phenomenon, and, and some of you are Trump supporters, right? And, or at least you know and deeply love and respect people who are. Um, that being said, I applaud Jonathan for daring to poke the political bear, <laughs> so to speak. And so I've come to poke a bit myself. <laughs> right? So my goal here is twofold. One, there were a couple of deeply prophetic words in last week's message that I do not want us to miss. So I want to reiterate them. Secondly, only naming Trump last week, um, didn't seem fair to me. So I want to name the rest of the candidates running for president in ways that will help all of us feel equally bad about all of them. <laughs> because fairness is a good thing. So if I offend anyone, please channel all that offense towards Jonathan. <laughs> he's younger than I am, and he's the one that started this. So just saying. I don't know what you've been experiencing, but for me, I'm having a hard time finding a candidate to support in 2016. I just am. Um, since you didn't ask, let me tell you how I feel to a person. Okay, so I have a hard time with Hillary because I think she's too much of a career politician. I'm just saying for me. And because of her stance on life in the womb. Um, life in the womb doesn't seem to be as sacred to her as I think it is to some of us. At least it seems that way to me. I, I think that's a corruption, and I think this is the point, 
that corruption in Christian thought is really what evil is. It's, it's a good that's been rusted. It's a good that's been paled. It's a pair of jeans that are starting to get see-through-ish because they're corrupting. That's what evil means. Eve, to be eviled means something good is getting less good. That's all it means. Um, it's anti-creation. It pushes away from, from this notion that creation, according to Christian thought, starts with nothing. In other words, the, the, the Latin phrase is ex nihilo. So out of nothing, God creates, and then there's kind of chaos, but then he begins to order the chaos, and it becomes good. That's the trajectory of creation. Anti-creation is something that's good, starts to get a little disordered, and then chaotic, and then loses. That's creation being eviled or corrupted. Um, every candidate has some corruption, has some evil. Every voter does as well. This is why we keep praying, deliver us from evil. Because we have the penchant in a fallen world to do fallen things. Um, this is why we repent and move towards the good. Because we want to move towards being creative and move towards anti-evil to good. So back to evil Hillary. <laughs> I do love that she's a woman. I mean, how cool would it be to have a woman president? I think. Um, I've, heard, I've told that to people. They say, well, you can't just vote for her because she's a woman. And I always say, well, well, yes, I can. If this is the only redeeming quality I can find in this election, I can too vote for her. <laughs> then there's evil Ted Cruz. Remember, all of us are evil. Because a big part of me really does believe we need to secure our borders and it really does believe we should have a strong military. I know not everybody thinks that, but I believe that. Which are big things for Cruz and Trump and Kasich. I mean, I get that. I'm a, I'm a little pro-Cruz, but, but Ted, <laughs> this is so mean and I don't mean to be mean, but I just gotta, I'm just going to tell you. He just seems a little too Richard Nixon-y to me. And if you don't know that, that's okay. You know, but what it means is I can't seem to trust Ted <laughs> I've tried to like him. Um, I, I just would feel better if he uh, were constantly puffing on this big stogie cigar <laughs> and talking to me. I, he'd be more believable to me. <clears throat> it, it would just take off some of the slick. Yeah, this is bad. I know. But anyway. And, and to make matters worse for me, he keeps saying, and I want you to know I love the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that makes me nervous because in the political context, it feels a little like you're swearing by heaven to me. You know what I mean by that? You remember when, I was, when you were a kid, if you didn't do it, we used to do it all the time. I'd tell the kid, my friends and my brothers, some yarn that was a little hard to believe. And if, I could, if they didn't believe me, I would say, oh, no, it's true. I swear to God. So I was trying to bring God in on my side because what I was saying wasn't all that believable. I'm real nervous when anybody tries to bring God into their context where they can't let their ideas stand for themselves, that in ways it seems like they're trying to tuck God into being their supporter. I'm nervous about that. I, I don't know 
what to say about John Kasich other than the fact I almost forgot to mention him. <laughs> I really kind of like evil Bernie Sanders. I mean, he's a cool old guy who has stuck to his same message for 30 years. And I would love for the federal government to pay for my grandkids' college education. I would love it. <laughs> the problem is I don't want to give up 50% of my earnings for that kind of thing to happen. Call it greed, right? I feel the burn, but, but when, I, when I look at the source of the fire, it seems to be emanating from my wallet. <laughs> and I want to stop, drop, and roll. I mean, I'm, honestly, I'm just not convinced that socialism can work for a 323 million plus nation like it does for Norway or other teeny European nations that have four, four citizens. <laughs> then there's the Donald, right, as they call him. Uh, I get thrown by him because he doesn't seem to have the, what I think are decency and respect filters that I think every leader should have. I think that's evil. It's not more evil necessarily, but it's evil. I, I think that most of his followers actually see that. I don't think they're that stupid. I, I, I think they just kind of like it, which is also evil. They, they feel like he's sticking it to the people that lots of us want to stick it to in Washington. And they kind of delight in it. I, I kind of get that evil. There's a part of me that kind of goes, hmm. It's, it's weird, though, because even though I'm so offended by him a lot of times on a lot of levels, I can't stop watching him on TV. It's, I keep thinking, he can't be serious. I mean, right? I mean, he can't be serious. I, I mean, there's no way. I mean, he's got to be playing for TV ratings or something. You know, this, it, it just, it's, no one can be that controversial accidentally. In my view, I mean, it's, it's got to be a PR gag is how I think. It's, it's, it's just way too much like his reality show, the, the, the Apprentice, to be real to me. If you believe he's actually being totally serious, then yes, yikes to me. But, but I'm not convinced. I think that it's more theater, evil theater, but it's more theater. That's my view. Okay, so hopefully you feel bad about everybody now. All this to say is I'm having a hard time finding a candidate to support in this election cycle. And uh, I wish we had more choices. Some of those who dropped out of the race, in my view, would have been more electable evil people. Um, but the truth is, no matter who is running, at the end of the day, we're only left with the opportunity to vote for an evil someone who is the least bad. Every one of them and every one of us are evil fallen beings. End of story. We live in a fallen world, and our best is, might just be a lighter shade of bad. St. Augustine makes this point in his work, City of God. He's talking about politics, and he's talking about how Christians can be involved in the political arena, and he says, don't get confused. This is not the city of God. One day, we're going to be participants in the actual city of God, and even though we're its citizens, we're living in a world that's not the city of God. We're living in the world that he calls the city of Cain. Or the city of man is what he's trying to say. And what he basically says is, as people of the city of God, your, your values, your heart, you, have, you may have all kinds of things that you're for, that when you look over against the city of Cain, you realize, oh my gosh, they're, they, they're, they're so horribly deficient. 
There, it, whether it's about ethics or whether it's about morals or whatever kind of things that are important to the Christian, that when you look at the city of Cain, they may have a hundred values that they're holding that you go, oh my gosh, I cannot hold to that. Augustine says, find the one or two or three values that you can agree with and lock into those because you're never going to bring the city of God here. The kingdoms of this world will only become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ when Jesus comes back. In the interim, lower your expectations and learn what's called the principle. His, in his, this is the principle of privation. It means learn to find things you can agree with even though you don't agree with everybody and lock into those things. That somehow, I mean, you, if, you, if you find a pair of buried you know, jeans with holes and rot in the legs, that's better than walking around buck naked in the cold. Put them on. Right, that's his point. But never lose the sight of the fact that we're always voting for members of the city of Cain. Okay, so let me shift here. Two prophetic points I heard last week that I want to reemphasize before I stop talking. Uh, first is I loved Jonathan's point that there must be room in the church for differences of opinion. This is such an important distinction to make when we talk about politics. He mentioned Jesus' closest group, the 12, uh, where there's a couple of zealots in there who are very politically active. And there's this tax collector that the zealots were politically active against. <laughs> and they're all in the same room, same campfire. They, they, uh, you couldn't have gotten more diverse people together than that. And you got to wonder if Jesus just picked them as his apostles precisely because he wanted to see the theater that would develop. I mean, it had to get colorful. They're walking around a lot of times claiming who's greater than the other. You don't think politics came up? I'm sure it did. There had to be colorful moments, right? But what if, irrespective of those kinds of issues, we're still called to be together? Some um, here in this room, well, not some, all of us in this room, hold different Values that we believe are sacred and godly. A sacred value is one that values life or, or what we think will make life better or safer. Uh, it's always something we're convinced must be done for the common good. Right? They're sacred values to us. The problem is we don't always agree on what those values are. Or if we kind of agree on values, we don't agree on the prioritization of those values, which one's most important at any particular time. Uh, to say that there must be room in the church for political difference means that we don't get to claim that our value is the only one that matters. So let me give you a couple of examples. I know some Christians who are very pro-military. They believe that their lives or that lives will be lost if uh, we don't have a strong military. I'm actually more like that personally myself. Um, I, but I have friends that are deep pacifists. I mean, they believe we, shouldn't have, we should have a minimal military, if one at all, right? And so to argue my value, you know, I'll talk with them and I'll go to Bible texts like this one. This is 1 Timothy uh, 1, 8 and 9. It says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. And remember, this is Paul talking, saying what the law that grace overshadows but he's talking about the law still in play even though grace overshadows it because there are bad people in the world. 
So he says, we also know that the law is not made for righteous people, they're under grace, but for lawbreakers and rebels and the ungodly and the sinful and the unholy and the irreligious, people who kill their fathers and mothers for murderers. He's saying, look at, grace is wonderful, for, but not for people who refuse to submit to it. I mean, he, here he's not talking about grace. He's talking about law. And then, and then I'll show him this verse, Romans 13. For rulers hold no terror for those that do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of one who's in authority? Then do right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant. So I'm a government, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants with the sword, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now we can cut this out of the Bible if you want, but it's in there. The idea is that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So, so, I tell my friends, listen, a strong military or a strong police force, to me, filled with people who are willing to get into harm's way to protect me and people I love in our country, to protect us from crazy people. Um, to me, it's us refusing to give grace to the proud, but giving them the law because they're acting in a way that the law is designed to deal with. I think it's pro-life. But my friends also have a Bible. Blast. <laughs> and they, they, they'll do stuff like point to Jesus on this issue, and, which is a really soft spot for me because I like Jesus. So they'll go to the Beatitudes. <laughs> and they'll, Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers. Right? For they will be called the children of God. And then Matthew 5, 38, this is what's called the lex telianos. This is the notion of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Man, let's just even the score here. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. So I respond, man, <laughs> dang it. <laughs> And though I don't agree with that this is everything that needs to be said on the matter, I'll tell you what happens to me when I hear this and talk with them is I end up not being quite as rigid in my position. Not quite as gung-ho. My Confucian quotient goes up a bit. But um, it, it has taken me a while to learn that that's okay. It's okay to be a little confused because, you know, bottom line is we're partially omniscient. We see through a glass darkly. And if it doesn't all fit together, that's okay. In fact, maybe I need to humble myself and listen to you realizing it's not that easy. I think there's such a thing as global warming and that um, if it goes unchecked, millions of lives could be affected over the next generations. It's a pro-life issue for me. Others who are equally committed followers of Jesus Christ think the whole thing is a hoax. Some of you believe that, that we'll be a safer nation if every law-abiding citizen owns a gun. Others say, let's just get rid of all guns. The, the truth is, both groups are embracing the same value. They want protection. It's just we don't agree on how that's to happen. Some of us want to protect life in the womb. 
seriously, deeply. Others want to protect life on the streets first. So I'm preaching in St. Louis, Missouri, this large church, about 5,000 people. I'm talking. I'm talking about how I was disappointed after a particular election happened. I felt that the issues of life would have been, were being quashed and that we're not going to be able to, to, to encourage. I wasn't preaching on it. I was just talking about it just in response to the election. Then I preached what I preached on, and this, this beautiful African-American couple came up to me after the service. Pastor Gunger, she said, very educated, astute gal. Pastor Gunger, she says. I usually enjoy it when you come here to speak. She said, but let me ask you a question, you that are pro-life. Have you ever had to put your children, this was back when the inner city was, was a, I mean, there's been times that it's been really bad, but this was really one of the worst times in American history. Nobody was talking about it. She said, have you ever had to put your kids in a metal bathtub on Saturday night to sleep because you were afraid that somebody might drive by and a bullet might kill your child? Have you ever even thought of that? I said, no. She said, she said are you ever afraid that when your kids get out of school and they come home that in the walk between their school and their home that they might get pulled into a gang or somehow be manipulated into participating in drugs. Is that a concern you have every day for your kids? I said, no. She said, do you think those lives matter? I said, yeah. She said, well, maybe being pro-life is not just being pro-life about what's in the womb. And she said, maybe I supported the candidate I supported because at least he spoke to the issues of the inner city and your candidate never even mentioned it. Okay. So who's right? Everybody is, a little bit. And who's wrong? Everybody is, maybe a lot. So what do we do? We don't get to homogenize or conflate what we deem sacred to our faith in our minds and then try to universalize what we've come up with for everyone and fight about it. We all come from different places. We have the right to reflect what we deem sacred. We need to be able to let people vote their own conscience. We should be open about our positions to others with respect or we can talk about why we feel the way we feel without being ridiculed, without being discounted, or being judgmental of them because they don't necessarily agree with us. We need to be open to rethinking what we think. We need to be open and willing to be challenged. And all the while we're doing that, we need to come to the table every week together and realize that here is the place where we're one and that this transcends any of our political views. I mean, even those of us who have crazy families get this. Thanksgiving, right? My brother Mark, he's radically conservative. I mean, crazy radically conservative. And loves to goad anyone who isn't. My sister Layla is in the exact opposite, radically liberal. I mean, she'll say the craziest thing just to get your goat. My sister Lisa, she's the peacemaker and she waffles way too much. So you think when we go to Thanksgiving, we talk about that stuff? Are you kidding me? We would kill each other. So we just kind of set that aside. When we, I mean, even a natural family gets this. Who we are together is more important than what we think apart. 
That doesn't mean we don't sidebar and have arguments, but it isn't the center. We don't let it divide us. And that's just being brothers and sisters. We're brothers and sisters and more. We're a body. Members of one another. Don't cut off your nose to spite your face. And for the love of Pete, don't leave the church over this stuff. I mean, some people leave the church over about anything. Don't do that. We're part of one another. We need one another. Lovingly speak up. Fight fair. Second thing. I'm done. I want to highlight from last week's message is that we cannot allow our civic responsibility to turn religious. This is so profound to me. All the things we fight for and all the things we work for in the political arena, they're temporal. They don't carry the weight of the eternal. And they cannot save us. I mean, this means we cannot express devotion to a political candidate or a political party or a political ideology with reckless abandon. As though God wants us to do it, to bring the kingdom into the world through political action. Remember Jesus' words to Pilate. I quoted it earlier. Oh, I don't know if I quoted it. John 18. Look at it. Jesus said, my kingdom is what? Not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now the kingdom is from, but now my kingdom is from where? Another place. Well, we represent from another place, and he's not asking you to fight. God did not design government to save us. Government can ease things a little and other times make things harder, but it never saves. And hear this, the New Testament understands salvation as a change of citizenship. Philippians 1, 27, look at it. Whatever happens, whatever happens, whatever's going on, how unsafe you feel, whatever, whatever's going on. As citizens of heaven, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You're more beholden to the gospel than you ever can be to some idea politically. We speak from another place. We represent another place. To quote Jonathan, our kingdom view is always something other. Our hope as Christians cannot be in government. It's it's really ultimately <laughs> fixing the return of Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's Advent hope, right? It's Revelations 11 where it says, then the seventh angel sounded. I don't know if we've had the first one yet, but the seventh angel sounded. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. This is our hope. That's why we do Eucharist. Another reason for Eucharist, because every time we do Eucharist, Paul said we're declaring that his death is going to be celebrated until his return happens. In other words, this is a declaration that Jesus has come, he is alive, and he's coming back. This is our space. We live in the tension of the fact that he's here and yet not here, and he's at work and yet not fully done. We represent another view. Notice 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Some of you have heard this before. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and vote for the right candidate, 
Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. If we will pray, if we will seek his face, if we will turn from our own evil, irrespective of who gets elected, God will heal. Our real trust cannot be in the vote we cast. One of the great examples of this point is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember it from the book of Daniel. They are serving this really weird king, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar really likes himself. Right? And they're serving the king. They're promoting the king. They're, they're, they're doing the things the king wants to expand the king. But the king one day decided he should be worshipped. <laughs> and they wouldn't accept him as God. And they wouldn't bow their knee. And it, you can hear it in the text that Nebuchadnezzar is almost sad. Because he liked them. So he orders them to be thrown into the fire. God saves it from them. But they said before they went in, if God saves us, who can save us, then great. If he doesn't save us, we just want you to know we're never going to bow to you. They didn't forget who they were even though they were deeply engaged politically. They didn't forget who they were. They didn't forget they were the people of God, as citizens of another place. We're the people of God. We can't forget either. So what does that mean? Support Hillary or Cruz or Kasich or Sanders or Trump or whomever you want to that you believe have the sacred values represented in them, but don't worship them or be over-devoted to them. Don't bend the knee when candidates promise they'll save America or when they try to come across like gods or when they are talking in ways that are thoroughly ungodly. Don't bend the knee to that. Our trust is in the name of the Lord. We're to pray, thy kingdom come for our nation. That is where our hope lies. Vote your conscience, but never trust the system of Cain. Trust in God. Amen. So let's stand together. Let's pray for our nation. Father is a people... We want to say first off that our hope is in you. That we want to represent, first of all, that our knee will never bow to anyone or anything outside of you. And that you'll give us wisdom, we ask, to support the things that are important to us. Recognizing that we may not see it fully and we may not all agree but that we need to respect each other and believe that somehow, no matter who ends up in office of president, that our hope is beyond that to you. And that we simply, no matter who ends up there, humble ourselves and pray and turn from our evil. Healing flows. Thank you that you're bigger than politics. Thank you that... <laughs> The city of Cain is no match for the city of God. And help us 
celebrate, engage, involve, do what we can do, roll up our sleeves, work for what we believe in, accept one another, honor one another, fight with one another, but always with civility and kindness as we come to the table. Let the table where everyone comes, irrespective of who they are, what they've done, where they're at, how smart or not so smart, how pretty or not so pretty they are, how rich or poor, we come as equals around the table. No matter what we believe politically, we come as equals around the table. Let the table define us, we pray, <laughs> through Christ our Lord. And everybody said, Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.